Um, my name's Theo. I'm the least important person here. We'll be having a discussion, uh, a series of short uh, pieces from each of the panellists, then a bit of a discussion amongst the panellists, hopefully facilitated by myself, then questions from the floor. When it comes to questions, I would ask that they are questions, not statements, opinions, theories, or other long-form essays, um, and that you identify yourselves uh, when you ask the question. So, um, if we're all good, we'll start um, with um, uh, our MEP, Saeed Kamal, um, who uh, represents uh, the United Kingdom and has been working on financial services for a considerable, I think, period of time, it's fair to say. Mr. Kamal, over to you. Thank you very much. And can I just apologise for my voice? Uh, I'm normally much louder, so you'll probably be quite grateful that I'm not. Uh, one, of my, one of my hobbies is that I play in a blues band, and I kind of wellied it a bit too much last week. So I'm still, I'm still kind of recovering with the voice, as it were. Um, so uh, that's just kind of give me some street cred as well. But I suppose, I suppose blues is actually not street cred these days. It makes you feel like, feel like an old man who says, you know, I woke up this morning and my dog was dead or something like that. Um, so um, the questions I often ask, I, I'm, I start off generally any subject being quite sceptical. Not because I don't want things to work, but actually I think you should always ask the difficult questions and you should always be prepared to, to look at know what someone's proposing and actually try and rip it apart not to be destructive but to actually be constructive and to look and, and to look at issues and um, i like a quick uh, bit of background about about me i have worked um, i mean i worked my, my first job after university actually was in the it department of a bank i was a geek i'm not a father of geeks so i love technology i've also done a lot of financial services legislation and trade stuff and tech stuff in my 13 years here in the european parliament um, and the question i ask whenever we see any technology is when i was doing my master's in information technology, uh, its policy, strategy, and technology itself. I remember doing a module on information systems, and my lecturers asked us all, what is an information system? And everyone immediately talked about computers. They said, stop there. An information system is simply a collection of information that you can share with each other. It's data, it's, it's information. Um, I'm simplifying it. It doesn't necessarily need to be on a computer. You know, if you're a local village library, and you don't, you don't swap books with anyone else ever, Actually, you can have a really good information system, all paper-based. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying don't think it's all about technology. So why do I say that here? Because we have this amazing thing that we call blockchain. We've heard about blockchain, which is simply a distributed ledger. Um, on te you know, and technology allows you to do all sorts of things, put people together, make things faster, have more information available, um, be more transparent in some ways. But it's also a downside. But it's also the question I ask is, what can you use blockchain for now? What could you use blockchain for potentially in the future? And actually, what will it never be used for? Now, I, I, I'm always skeptical about that own question, about what can ever be used for, because sometimes you find use of technology completely unenvisaged at, at, at the beginning. And so, you know, I've, I've had all sorts of claims. I've had people come to me and say, blockchain will solve poverty forever. I said, well, that's great. I mean, I'd, lo I'd like, love that to be true, but tell me how it's going to do that. And we know that clearly it's going to be disruptive in many ways or useful. If you think about uh, permission blockchains and private blockchains, um, if you think about, you know, I'm quite a classical liberal stroke libertarian. I know lots of libertarians are very excited that we're taking, you know, it's taking stuff away from central banks and, 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 and decentralizing life, you know. What others are saying, actually, no, be very careful with the financial institutions are just going to control everything even more. Actually, that's a political debate wider than that. The question I want to ask today, or what I'm hoping to hear from the, uh, the rest of the panels here, is yes, we understand it could make processing much easier, it can make uh, data much more transparent, 
um, you know, and actually that in itself is, 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 a, is a good thing. But what can it really do now to make things more efficient and reduce transaction costs? Um, what could it do in the future? And actually, where, where, where is the hype here? And what are the things that we have to be careful about? I'll just end as legislators. I'm quite relaxed about technology. I think what you should just do is step, get, the, get the hell out of the way and let technology develop. But what happens when something goes wrong? Because when something goes wrong, people come to us as politicians and expect us to have an answer. It's not very easy for me to say, well, actually, you should have been careful there or, you know, buyer beware or caveat emptor or that's yeah, your own fault or actually you're pretty stupid. I can't say that to constituents. You know, actually, they, they want to know what happens when something goes wrong. And so what should we be looking out for as well? I'll stop there. I'm very positive about all these developments. I love technology. Very excited about some of the positive stories I hear and some of the ones you're going to hear today. But I also want to get the right balance here. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I suppose um, if your view is to get the hell out of the way of technology, one, one might argue that perhaps um, Mr Kirstens and the Commission might be stepping into the path of technology occasionally. Um, so over to you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain about that. We, we want to be very deliberate and very careful about it and, and um, take our time. Do no harm. Um, I'm very pleased to be on this panel on, on uh, market infrastructures because if you talk about blockchain and crypto assets, cryptocurrencies and so on, not in this room, but generally in the policy community, opinions on crypto assets, cryptocurrencies are very divided. And a lot of people are extremely skeptical about all of these tokens and so on. But there seems to be an almost universal support for the fact that while people have doubts about these tokens, they all say, but the underlying technology is very promising and very powerful, and we should explore this underlying technology. And they said, yeah, that's probably true. And in particular, if you would then apply this, for example, to um, financial uh, market infrastructures. Although there is, of course, a contradiction in the sense that everyone seems to be in favor of blockchains, but lots of people have doubts about crypto assets. But of course, they go hand in hand because there is no blockchain without a crypto asset. There may be a distributed ledger without a crypto asset, but there's no blockchain without a crypto asset. So if you're in favor of one, you must be open or open-minded about the other, at least. Anyway, if you look into financial market infrastructures, what really are they? And I mean no offense to any of them because they're quite sophisticated infrastructures. But in essence, they really are exercises in account and record keeping. That's really what it is. It's not more than that. Now, what is blockchain? What is distributed ledgers? It's an accounting system. Really, it's a record keeping system in a distributed way. There's some cryptography uh, attached to it, but it's not more than that. Now, um, the financial market infrastructures, as uh, you say, the most important financial institutions in our system no one has ever heard of, um, they do this record keeping, these interconnections uh, in the system, uh, the account keeping, in a centralized way. They do this in a centralized way um, because that's how our financial system is set up, but also because that's what our financial regulation requires. And um, as a result of the financial crisis, this has been strengthened 
we've seen requirements on central clearing, stronger requirements on central clearing, requirements on central trade repositories, requirements on central security depositories. So basically all of these activities, all of this account keeping has to be centralized and then the regulation starts focusing on these centralized players. Now this system works, but it has some um, downsides. So it, the system works and financial regulation really is, at its essence, an exercise in centralization and creating a franchise around that, that centralization. But it has some downsides. The downsides as a result of the centralization are potential inefficiencies between the various players, the constant need to reconcile accounts between the, the central accounts and the people using these uh, accounts, uh, the possibility of vertical silos, concentration risks. So there are a number of downsides to this system. That doesn't mean that the system doesn't operate. It operates actually pretty well, but you have to recognize um, uh, these, these downsides. And the question is, does distributed ledger technology and blockchains now or in the future as this technology develops, does this provide an answer to these downsides without creating other downsides? And if it does provide an answer, an answer to, uh, to addressing these downsides, um, maybe there's a great future for this. Personally, I think there is, but that's my personal view on it. Because if you think about it, financial market infrastructures, they cater to many people that need to have a common view of the same truth for assets that have many life, um, uh, what you call them, um, uh, many um, life cycle events. That's really what financial market infrastructures do. So if you can do their work in a distributed database record keeping system, that's potentially a very powerful, um, a very, a very powerful uh, way of, of using the technology. And so we see a lot of financial market infrastructures, and they're actually quite two-minded about this technology. On the one hand, they see this as a great opportunity to make themselves much more efficient, or even more efficient than they are already, because they are already pretty efficient, but even more efficient and to shorten settlement times and what have you, reduce costs, all kinds of good things. Um, and so they're trying to, in a way, and I think it's fair to say, to co-opt the technology and to sometimes even try to dominate the standard-setting bodies so that they control the technology for their own marginal efficiency gain. And that's good. We have no problem with that. But some of these market infrastructures also see the technology as an existential threat because they realize that what they're doing, fantastic as it may be, isn't rocket science. Some of it looks like rocket science, but it's not really. And that there are other ways of doing it, and a blockchain-based system could do it, and someone else might be able to do it. Um, and that is, of course, something the financial market infrastructures are not looking forward to, uh, that they're being displaced. Now, are the regulators looking forward to the financial market infrastructures being disrupted or displaced? I'm going to take the fifth on this. Um, I say we, are, we have various uh, perspectives on this. And the European Commission, we're a fairly schizophrenic body. We have many, many objectives. Of course, from a stability point of view, 
we've required decentralization and we want this to be kept because we believe it's better to centralize these activities in certain institutions and then to control these institutions and to regulate them strictly for their risk. So from that perspective, we do not really want this disruption. We, we, we think that this has to be done in centralized institutions. However, we do realize that decentralization creates vertical silos or contributes to vertical silos, which is bad for competition. And we want more competition. So from that perspective, we say, well, it may be good if this is disrupted. So I'd like to sort of sum up on this is that um, we are a bit um, conflicted into our perspective on, on this, but that's not necessarily a problem at this stage because the technology, to answer the question, the technology is not yet ripe enough to realize this disruption that may happen at some stage. At this very day, it is, in my view, impossible to replace the big market infrastructures with a DLT-based, blockchain-based system. At this stage, the capacity, the resilience, the performance of these systems just isn't there. But I'm pretty certain that as time evolves and the technology evolves, that a moment will be reached where this technology will be strong enough to displace these um, infrastructures. The question then will be, do we want this? Thank you very much. And a, and a partial question, uh, answer to um, Saeed's uh, initial question, what can be done now? And I'm probably not alone in thinking that cognitive dissonance is a, is a worrying thought inside the Commission. But um, let's turn to, to Mark Fetian. Um, is what you're doing rocket science? How do you view blockchain in this context? Peter and I go back, so his veiled insults don't bother me so much. <laughs> nice to see you, Peter. <laughs> uh, Mark Weijun at DTCC. I head up the company's uh, global public policy function and sit on the board of DerivServe, which is a subsidiary that operates the trade information warehouse business, and that is a business that's being replatformed um, as we speak on a uh, DLT platform. Um, and I'll talk about that in just, just a moment. Um, the other thing I would just mention about my background is I also sit on the board of LedgerX, which is the first uh, federally licensed um, training venue and clearinghouse in the U.S. that is devoted exclusively to Bitcoin uh, derivatives. So unlike a lot of other trading platforms out there, as I said, what's what um, is unique about LedgerX, and of course, it's not unique so much anymore since other um, players have come into the space, but what was unique, it was the first to be licensed to do what they do um, and be totally devoted to um, uh, Bitcoin derivatives. So um, that's been an interesting perspective I've had too, just to see uh, how they've gone through this journey of getting licensed and dealing with some of these interesting policy questions that have arisen uh, as a result of the sort of instruments that they deal with. Um, your question, though, is what we do rocket science. It was raised. <laughs> um, it's no, it's not rocket science. It's it's not it's not terribly uh, complex. At the end of the day, I think there's a fair amount of complexity in the uh, market practices. And so, if you look at what DTC, we do a variety of different things. One of them is we we provide clearing and settlement services in the U.S. So we have uh, two clearing houses and then one central securities depository. And certainly the CSD 
um, is basically a record keeper. It, it does uh, not too much more than that. There's some asset servicing uh, that it also performs, but but that's layered on top of the core function of the CSD. Um, the CCPs, they, <clears throat> they're involved in the provisioning of guarantees and also the netting of transactions. And so there's a little bit of complexity there, but uh, but in the grand scheme of things, um, it's not it's not the most complicated set of services in the world. Um, I'll talk just a little bit about the trade information warehouse because it's even more basic in some ways than the clearing and settlement services. And as I said, that's that's a business that's undergoing uh, this pro this DLT project replatforming at, at the moment. So uh, this this effort is actually in the user acceptance testing phase. So. It's significant because it means uh, we actually have our customers now testing this new environment, uh, trying to determine bugs and, and work through those. And the plan is to go live uh, sometime in the earlier part of 2019. So as far as we know, this would be the first um, enterprise uh, market-wide DLT application that goes into effect um, on a global basis. And... I could, there's a number of things to share about this experience, but I thought what I would do is just maybe spend a couple of minutes talking about some of the key lessons learned. One of the things that's been um, discovered, and again, when you explain it in this way, in retrospect, it doesn't seem like such a major discovery, but um, data transformation is, is a real issue. So if the technology uh, provider um, insists on the data coming in in a particular format, but the marketplace is accustomed to keeping the data in a, an entirely different format. Format uh, That requires that uh, the TIW service in this case has to transform that data into a new format. Um, whenever that happens, you obviously introduce a level of complexity into the business that leads to the opportunity for error and, and therefore additional costs potentially for the customer. Uh, so that's that's been one thing that was discovered, uh, I would say, the hard way. Um, another thing that's been touched on in the previous panel relates to uh, these different legal requirements, whether they come from GDPR uh, or some of the more basic records and books and records requirements that a lot of financial firms have around the world. And the real issue here is, again, reconciling the fact that you have a database that, for the most part, is designed to be uh, immutable, but you have these legal requirements that actually require changes to the database. Database In the case of books and records, it's kind of interesting because um, whether there's a conflict I described depends on whether or not there's a view that uh, the data that sits on the blockchain really should be properly viewed as part of the books and records of an individual firm. Um, I'd be interested to see or hear what Peter has to say about that issue. But as a former regulator, I would imagine that most regulators would view or take the view uh, that, in fact, those or that information, that data on a blockchain is part of the firm's books and records. I would guess that's how most supervisors around the world would look at it. One of the advantages of doing this replatforming uh, with just the trade information warehouse business, however, is that... Um, it's not a regulated business, so that actually makes this a little bit complex, but nonetheless still raises the two um, issues I mentioned, GDPR and books and records. Um, another issue that has come up is the processing that the TIW service does, and this relates to um, credit events affecting the referenced 
securities, um, as well as the provisioning of payments, the settlement of payments. If that is being done by uh, software that uh, is the subject of intellectual property, then the question comes whether or not users of the service who are availing themselves of this processing on the ledger uh, owe some kind of royalty to the provider of the software. And one way to address that challenge is to take that processing off ledger and do it separately. But of course, if you do that, it's a bit like the data transformation issue. You're, you're introducing additional complexity, um, which could lead to, again, more errors and more costs. And then the last interesting issue is, um, and this, the last issue concerns the hosting of nodes. So if, if our customers in this TIW business decide to host a node, um, a number of other issues are raised. And I have to give a shout out to Barclays because uh, Barclays has been involved in the, uh, in, uh, it's one of the customers of TIW, but they've been heavily, and they sit on our board, but they've been heavily involved in uh, this project. And they have some very, very talented people there have helped uh, work through some of this issue. And I, I remember uh, being in a meeting and someone from Barclays actually raised this point I'm about to share with you, which is if, again, there are certain things being done on the validator node and it's hosted by a firm, um, what is it that other market participants or users of the service should see and what is it that they should not see? And so, again, it really gets down to governance of the nodes, who makes decisions about that, and what kind of potential legal liability uh, could arise, depending, again, on what sort of processing and information is kept on a node that's hosted by, not DTCC, um, as the provider or the owner of the service, as it were, but rather uh, a firm or a customer that actually hosts one of the nodes in the network. So those are just a few issues, um, and but I think important ones that we've had to learn, and um, happy to share those with the group here today. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to ask um, Dan from Ripple whether what you do is rocket science, as it seems to be a, a nice leading question. Um, but you are perhaps distinct from where DTCC is. DC is established. It's an incumbent. You're new. You're emerging. Um, what's your take on blockchain in FMI from what you've heard so far? Sure, thanks. Uh, first of all, thanks to ATCO for putting on a great event today. Uh, putting together the organization, so uh, we're great, uh, thrilled to be uh, a part of that. So unlike uh, the DTCC, Ripple is not FMI, not yet. Um, so I thought it might be helpful to give a run through about who we are and, and what we do or what we're trying to do and interesting questions that may uh, bring up in the future around uh, how uh, FMIs and infrastructure will, will develop. Uh, so ultimately, Ripple is a technology company. Uh, that tries to remove the friction from cross-border payments, um, primarily by using DLT solutions, but also crypto assets. Um, we sell our solutions to financial institutions, including banks uh, and payment providers. Um, we're focused on cross-border payments because they're hugely inefficient. Um, you know, the costs uh, you know, are, are they're expensive, they're slow, take three to five days to settle, uh, opaque and expensive, um, primarily because... Uh, correspondent banking uh, patches together uh, domestic systems which are efficient. Um, and on top of this, the demand is going up, about 22 trillion in 2016, cross-border payments to around 30 trillion. And the, the way to send it, correspondent banking relationships are declining uh, down about 8% annually from 2011 to 2017. So the market is there 
uh, and we see uh, the opportunity. Also might add, um, it costs 10 times more uh, to send money overseas than it does to send a domestic payment uh, uh, in the US. And because of this, obviously, the Committee for Payments and Market Infrastructure, uh, the global standard-setting body for payments and clearing, as in their recent report, said uh, there is room for improvement in the infrastructure of, uh, of payment systems. So I think that's uh, an, under, an understatement. We're going to focus on payment systems and settlement because obviously FMIs can be central security depositories and, uh, and other parts of the, the broader, broader infrastructure. So what are we trying to do? Um, we've got three products in the market. First of which is, is XCurrent, which uses DLT. Uh, the third is, is XRapid uh, and XVIA, which brings the two together. Um, Payment systems today work in a sequential fashion. Uh, so banks have relationships with each other. They debit and credit their accounts that they hold with each other through a series of file-based messaging. Obviously, this is slow, um, can be costly. There's delays, there's risks and uncertainty. Uh, and there's a huge amount of FX and reconciliation uh, risks involved. And obviously, it may work if you're sending uh, GBP to USD or Euro to US dollar. But if you don't have a direct relationship, if you're going Brazilian real to, to Philippines peso, you're going to go through a, a whole host of correspondence on the way, which is going to be extremely costly and time-consuming, and actually for many consumers, uh, are not possible. So what we try and do with, with XCurrent, which has 200 customers today, including banks and payment providers, is link bidirectional messaging with settlement. Um, may sound simple, but most correspondent banking today uses file-based messaging, which is one way. Uh, this is more akin to a, a WhatsApp message rather than a, a PDF file. Uh, but the key killer app on, on, on XCurrent is the fact it links to settlement. And you, you use a technology called Interledger Protocol, which is a DLT permission system to do this. Um, and we think of this like the, uh, the HTTP of the Internet of Value. It can connect different ledgers. In the fact that we have open sourced it, and it's been used by the Gates Foundation today to connect different mobile money ledgers. Um, so it can connect Bitcoin to um, RTGS or, or different mobile money ledgers in, in Africa, and it can relay and route payments through different networks. So it's the interoperability layer. But like a DLT system, there's no central operator um, leverages cryptography uh, and encryption, but it is a permissioned uh, network. What, then we start to think, well, what is a payment system? Well, payment system are sets of instruments and procedures and, and rules to transfer funds between participants. So Ripple is a technology provider, uh, but we do actually have a set of rules and governs to ensure uh, that it works uh, in practice. Uh, so the members of RippleNet come together to decide what payment finality is, disparate resolution, any technical standards or messaging fields and interpretation of them fields and updated um, through committee uh, as the software updates. So because there's no central operator, uh, you think about in the future around payment systems may develop, the network is developed through a set of rules as well as the technical protocol uh, layer. And that was essential to, to make the product viable. And we also developed a system where uh, the, the ledger were all maintained by each financial uh, institution and the permission network because of scalability issues and obviously data privacy concerns uh, where they were not comfortable at all with, with using a, a proof-of-work blockchain or, or different systems. So the system is slightly different. You think about where we Ripple sits in that payment system. Well, we are a data provider, so the KYC and AML stays with the bank. Uh, that's unchanged. Um, the data also stays uh, between uh, financial institutions and does not come to Ripple. Um, so we're a third-party tech provider. We meet third-party vendor 
requirements, but obviously play a quite important role uh, in fulfilling a payment, but yet don't necessarily touch or transfer funds. So future discussions around payment infrastructure uh, could be potentially developing in this space. But um, ex-current, today you still need to pre-fund uh, overseas. There are two, five trillion, five to ten trillion, depending on the McKinsey report you read, I, I can't believe which one's right. There's a lot of, a lot of money that trapped up in Nostro or Vostro accounts overseas, and that's how payment systems work. You still need to do that uh, with, with ex-current. So our second product, ex-rapid, which is commercially available, but not live, so uh, we'll hold our hands up. And the one of the reasons for that we'll touch on is regulatory uncertainty around digital assets. So what ExRapid does is trying to replace the need to pre-fund <coughs> by sourcing for liquidity domestically through a digital asset. Um, you may say, how exactly does it, does it do that? Okay, well, we'll, we'll try and uh, develop that a little bit further. Um, we leverage different institutions than you would do in a typical payment system, typically digital asset exchanges or, or platforms. A financial institution uh, payment provider typically would connect through an API to two digital asset exchanges. Uh, at the local exchange, would exchange fiat, domestic fiat, for in our case, XRP, a digital asset. Uh, there would be a movement of XRP across the ledger, and that would exchange fiat, uh, XRP for fiat in the beneficiary market. The final leg of that payment could then be over the domestic rails, or they could have a direct account uh, with the exchange. So there's been two domestic payments and one movement of XRP removing the need to pre-fund overseas. And particularly, typically, if you're going to go through exotic corridors, low-volume um, corridors where there, there isn't pre-funding, expensive to do so, and they typically won't have their relationships, that's the type of market that we're targeting so far to so places like Philippines where we've got some pre-production contracts. So key benefits, obviously, it reduces costs by around 40 to 70% in trials. We're running in 2016. It's obviously a lot faster, instantaneous. It links payments to settlement and it can expand reach uh, to, to markets which are currently difficult to, to access. So what does this mean for a modern uh, FMI? Well, the financial markets intermediaries grew up around the same time as dematerialization, where bilateral relationships were no longer uh, efficient. So obviously, we're conducting new activities with new uh, assets. Uh, so not, we wouldn't necessarily typically replicate what we're doing. But I do think in some respects, we do have to replicate some of it. And if we look around the world, we're starting to see that. The G20 has identified a whole host of intermediaries are starting to look at. IOSCO is looking at exchanges. FSB is looking systemically. Uh, and Basel, again, is looking at from a prudential point of view. So for Ripple, um, it's a similar view. We think it's clear that classification of the digital asset is essential from a legal framework. Obviously, many people will see what's going on in the US, but globally, thinking, for instance, in Switzerland, where they've identified only through guidance what digital assets are. This has provided much-needed certainty to interact and potentially utilize that asset. And the on-and-off ramps for fiat uh, are going to be a really important part of the financial market infrastructure uh, in the future, including things like consumer protection, AML, which is obviously going to come in through the Fifth Annual Money Laundering Directive here in Europe. Um, but obviously, in the future, safety and soundness message, capital, cybersecurity, um, and a separation of, of, of clearing and settlement is, is going to be key. I think obviously important in the financial system is around how institutions interact with it. So from a prudential or capital mm. perspective, um, at the moment, digital assets, no matter what regulatory perspective they are, are classified as, as other assets. So I think it's important to, to really try and understand what, what we're dealing with here, provide some certainty around 
them particular assets. So that's me. Um, we're not an FMI at the moment. We're, we're reasonably small. But I think we raise a few questions about what the future might be. Thank you very much indeed. And obviously a lot of different uh, assets there. But for every different approach to something like digital asset, there are different perspectives on things. And I think Maya will um, give us uh, another perspective on what we've heard so far from the various people, both in the regulatory and on the sort of FMI, not quite FMI um, stage. I've had uh, the privilege of seeing the space evolve, where just the fact that we're all sitting here in within the EU Parliament discussing different uh, taxonomy about crypto assets, incentive systems, and standardization is real progress. Um, but having spent a few years in private blockchain uh, projects, I think we we're at this point where we need to understand that we went through the first iteration, and yes, probably it's blockchain at this. Uh, point in time is not a credible solution for a lot. But the second generation is where more, um, more of these world in crypto and blockchain financial markets and identity um, and in other purposes are actually going to collide. Uh, and the reason for that are efficiencies in financial markets, but also, um, and here I'm going to kind of, I think of the word complexity that has been referred to earlier as synonymous with intermediaries. And one of the major breakthroughs that blockchain had promised, or consensus systems in general, was, the, was having one golden source and not having to trust a third party in order to interact. And as we've matured more as a market, we've realized that's not something that is probably feasible on a global scale, on a national scale, uh, for financial assets in general. Because you always, A, you need an intermediary because you want someone else to sue if something goes wrong. You want someone else to complain to. And uh, you need to know who do you trust, who you don't trust, to tell you who you not to trust, right? Um, and we see that the state of financial market uh, infrastructure in the world, the fiat world, and in markets in general, is also at a pivot point where it might actually diverge. We see... Um, some people in Europe start talking about a new financial settlement system. We see China taking its own path in terms of uh, wanting access to all data. So that makes me, and in, in when we're looking at security tokens, we're looking back and trying to understand what the progress that we've made as an industry with the financial markets, DTCC, Baffin, uh, um, Deutsche Börse, and so forth. And we can see that in the beginning, blockchain was the huge promise that was going to save everything. And then people start experimenting and they realize that they can't put all their data on a blockchain because they don't want everyone to see it. Consensus is only achieved if the blockchain serves as a transparency machine. And then the second iteration was that people started not putting the data on the blockchain, but just tokenizing or creating crypto assets that can be refer referred to uh, other pieces of information. And then they just timestamped whatever transaction happened onto that blockchain. So the, the information, the data is off-chain, the computation is done off-chain, and the blockchain is only used to change tokens or assets or uh, uh, and timestamp uh, different information that's uploaded. That gets us to the point where this efficiency that we were promised doesn't come through. We're not using the blockchain for P2P transactions, right? Because we're doing everything off-chain. We're not, we can't even verify or validate data. We're going to need another blockchain for that. And that introduces more and more levels of complexity and hierarchy. And we've seen that 
lesson being learned in the ICO space these days where they're basically relearning a thousand years of financial history and rebuilding the same kind of financial hierarchies that are needed in order to have an efficient, regulated market that doesn't get the SEC on your back. Now, um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a promise. The second generation is of what I think we're going to see as crypto assets is A, going to be very um, distinctive from what we've seen as cryptocurrencies, crypto asset being um, assets digitally represented, um, issued and traded and reaching their entire life cycle on chain, including corporate governance and everything that ensues with that. On the other hand, you're going to see cryptocurrencies. Those are tokens that are used to incentivize networks. And we had a really good question in the last panel that I thought um, it should be questioned to every single private blockchain uh, um, project that is in works. How do you incentivize people, new people, to come in and join and basically support that network? How do you incentivize people to validate the data that is unloaded? There is such a thing of an incentive system on a distributed ledger. It's called a token economy. It's called mining val uh, validation rewards. And what we're going to see in the second generations are going to, in, 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 especially in terms of financial market infrastructure, right, is a convergence of those two economic schemes of regulation, financial mar markets, auditing and compliance demands, along with um, the incentive system of token economics. Now, a lot has been referred to the fact that a lot of financial market FMI players, basically, um, all they do is account um, setting. But a lot of what we need in compliance, in auditing, and reports for securities that are issued are usually gap reports, quarterly reports. And we can also achieve that with some cryptographic tools. And, and that's really what we're working on, is using privacy preser preserving technology for more than just privacy, but having privacy comp compute with those tools. For example, have the regulator set the rules and prove that you set those rules. Have the reporting be done by private computation and then just validated and verified via via the blockchain. Now, we have to understand that what we've already proven, and maybe it's not something that we should be talking about, but a product market fit for new security asset class, somewhere between private markets and public markets, has been validated in the ICO rush. And it shouldn't be so easily dismissed, um, even if there were a lot of bad players. What we're going to see is a lot of the new security fundraising that um, is on public blockchain start to adhere to FMI rules with everything that, uh, that that means. Auditing, compliance, KYC, AML, those are going to be the first real tangible uses of digital identity before uh, IDAS goes into effect. Because people are going to need to verify that information on-chain. They're going to need to verify jurisdictions for their investors on-chain. Um, and we're going to need to also start thinking of securities as something that is editable and composable and not just a digital representation for a contract that, ha that is enforced in one specific jurisdiction. And that also involves the corporate governance throughout that life cycle that could, we could see happen on-chain. So right now we're just dealing very specifically, I think, with automation. The next generation is where things are going to get interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. I have a question uh, for um, Said. Uh, you said in a way that you, um, as a liberal stroke libertarian, in, in some ways I, I'm guessing you, you don't want to be intervening um, in, what, in what's going on. But what, part of what Maya set out seemed to be a slight dichotomy for you. E either we can let things run or we can seek to incentivize certain behaviours. And maybe incentives aren't per se bad, but they're definitely a form of intervention. 
as a policymaker, what do you think about what you've heard so far, leading from where Maya started? Sure. Uh, um, yeah. Um, for those of you who are worried about my uh, views, I should let you know I'm quite a minority here in the Parliament. Um, so um, there are lots of people who would happily intervene all day long and write more and more legislation. And then we have sequels, just like Hollywood blockbusters. You know, we're, we're, I think we're up to use it's five, six, seven, eight. No, no, no I, know, I know we're up to five, I'm joking. We were, we were expecting to use it six at some time. Didn't happen yet. Um, the, you know, you, people come from a kind of ideological background and then, and then you kind of, com then the real world hits you. That's what happens with all, all politicians. So today I was, in a, I was in a meeting of colleagues and we were discussing distributed assets around Europe and, 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 um, and we're talking about distributed funds, sorry. Um, and we're all from different political families, but we reached compromise. Uh, and because that's the way the, that's where that's the way this place place works, and we found actually it's good enough to meet my it, either it's good enough to meet my concerns, or to address where I'm coming from. You know, it's it's always suboptimal, or what you're saying is actually or or you're outvoted. It's it's, it's as simple as that. So you know, this kind of I mean, I'm, you know, I, I kind of mock myself a little bit. But this kind of no regulation world will never does not exist and will, will never exist. But the question someone like me asks is, why do we need this regulation? And I think we've heard enough from the panel to say, actually, there are good, there are good reasons why you want, you, you want this. Sometimes it's rules. Sometimes it's harmonisation. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's mutual recognition. Other times it's actually because to make sure that you see a, you see a potential problem ahead and you want to make sure that that potential problem doesn't happen. Um, and that's why, that's why we do it. And actually, Peter and I are not that... Uh, much in disagreement. I'm not trying to call you a libertarian here, but Peter and I are not that. You know, you know, I've been on panels with Peter as well before, and you know, Peter's not asking to intervene at every possible moment. You know, he he is also prepared to step back and just see how the, how this thing involves, but actually to be aware of what could potentially go wrong as well. And Peter, you were you were called out as not necessarily being a libertarian, which is something. Um, but where, where do you stand on what we've heard from 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 uh, Dan? and from Mark and from, from Maya, there's a lot going on. Um, and you talked earlier uh, about sort of a, a level of initial scepticism, which perhaps, you know, has o overlaid this technology is amazing and we should use it. What do you think about what Maya said about the next generation and what Dan's basically saying about the shape of things to come? Imagine if you're a large <coughs> Belgian-based interbank um, money uh, communication agency like Swift. You might be thinking about what Dan's saying with with uh, interest, at least. So what, what, does it, what does it mean for how you see the, see the shape of Commission approaching regulation? SWIFT is an interesting example. We don't regulate SWIFT. It's a communications company. It's supervised in an ad hoc system by G10 banks. But it's an example of a global infrastructure which is not subject to any particular regulatory system. So actually, it's quite interesting. Um, if you look at other financial market infrastructures, now technology will develop and we'll see what happens. But the way the regulation is at this moment in Europe and also in other jurisdictions is that to carry out certain activities, you need to be licensed as such a service provider. So even though, because we've established that what um, financial market infrastructures do is not rocket science, so even if you are an almost rocket scientist and you can do this, 
you may not be allowed to do it because unless you are licensed as such an institution. Now you can debate as to whether that is necessary or not, but that we had that debate and we've introduced and we strengthened these licenses because these companies um, conduct business that attracts a lot of, not technology risk, but a lot of financial risk. And you need to regulate that for um, stability um, uh, purposes. So, if you are a large, I'll, I'll, let's, let's go, if you are a large financial institution, large financial market infrastructure in Belgium, and you're not SWIFT, you're the other one, um, would, should you be worried about these blockchain developments and them taking over central securities depositories? Well, probably not, because in order to be a central securities depository, you need to be licensed as one. And so far, these people do not seem to be licensed as a central security depository. Now, they may become, and in case there is competition, and we are always in favor of competition, the more the merrier. Um, but, of course, in order to be licensed as such an institution, you need to meet a, lo a lot of requirements. You almost need to look like this uh, financial market infrastructure, which I'm not going to mention. Um, and so the technology as such will not displace this. Uh, the question is really is that is the regulation as we have it, is that technology neutral enough? So does it allow these new technologies to be introduced either by alternative players or by the incumbents? Can they actually set up a system which is DLT based or does the regulation either implicitly or explicitly require them to do it in a particular way which is different. If that is so, that is probably something we would want to adapt because we do not think that our regulation should hold back technological um, uh, development, certainly not if that technological development is an improvement, uh, an efficiency an and a uh, performance um, improvement. But the technology evolves quickly, but not as that quickly that we're at the stage that we need to decide now because the technology is ready and it can be implemented. First of all, it's not ready. It's not, it doesn't have the stability and the scale yet. And even those elements where you can see interesting proof of concept where it is ready, that doesn't mean that um, the switching costs you'll incur by, from going from one technology to the other are justified because it may be great technology, it may solve for some of the problems you have, but switching from one to the other may just be prohibitively expensive and you still don't do it. Uh, and of course, uh, this allows us to look into these technologies really and in the business models that uh, revolve around them and see what it is they really bring. Do they really bring these efficiencies and do they cater and solve for the problems which we have identified? And if they really do, I don't think that the regulators will hesitate and try, and try to seize these opportunities. Because, of course, we are constantly looking at the efficiency of our, our financial system and try to make it more efficient. Like, we are not the ones that want long settlement times. We want to reduce settlement times. And we then get confronted when we want to reduce them, but people say, well, but don't settle that quickly because, of course, if you want to settle very quickly, I need to have the cash to pay for that. I don't have the cash, so it's actually quite okay to have slow settlement <coughs> systems. So there's, everyone comes at this with a different perspective and a different interest. Change it so long as it doesn't affect me too badly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maya, you wanted to say something based yeah, on what Peter um, said. I
while we were waiting for Kaiwaka's uh, project to evolve and lead to a seed, there is a market that has evolved, a market that probably should be better regulated in the ICOs, in the quicker access space, that has kind of changed and um, dispositioned what the role of broker dealer licenses and key licenses, uh, uh, CCPs, and so forth. And the question right now that is that is happening as we're talking is a lot of these new asset classes, and you can call them whatever you want, but essentially they're, um, they're assets that were issued on a blockchain and are traded and have a futures market and a derivative market and a custody market, are now starting to get integrated into Wall Street. It was last year, it was the CME and, and uh, Shibo. Now we're going to see different Bitcoin-backed um, and Ethereum-backed securities happening in NICE on assets. So what we had was um, the Wild Wild West of ICOs happening in the last uh, year, 18 months or so. And then we had different uh, DOC back office projects happening on the sidelines of the incumbents, by the incumbents, um, paid for by the incumbents. Um, and now as these two worlds are converging, fact I think is, is a fascinating um, case study in that because what right now we might see a Wall Street package cryptocurrency get much more traction than any other crypto asset. Now the reason that people really like these ICOs is that it was easier for them as a project or as a company to get cheaper funding without all the intermediaries and public market uh, offerings. And we can see that, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You can see empirically that the public markets have become less efficient, they're much more concentrated, and the the companies that are registered there are bigger. In the last 30 years, the public markets um, have 30% less companies registered there. That means that if you're a startup, if you're a company, and you want cheap financing, and the interest rates are going to go up, you might be better off looking for an offering on a blockchain product than anywhere else. And now the regulation needs to come in, because most of these people don't want to be criminalized, right? So we want to understand how we work together. Only most of them. Only most of them. Some of them are OK. They just get us regulated afterwards. But um, what we what we basically need to understand is not just the regulatory clarity, but how do all these worlds kind of live together? The old financial market infrastructure for GPCC, the Wall Street back, that might, I think the rehypification, we're going to be right back into new derivative uh, landscape, and the, the real security tokens or the real uh, cryptocurrencies all converge together along with the financial market infrastructure that a lot of them raise these currencies for, right? You have decentralized exchanges. Is that a broker-dealer? How do you define them? If you're a relayer on one of these networks, how would the EU see you? Let me, let me before, before we get into the in inquisition on the panel, and I'm going to open up to questions from the floor shortly, um, is, uh, we, we have this interesting, sort of interesting positioning here. So here we have DTCC over there, Ripple. Um, and we've, we've talked briefly about SWIFT. But <laughs> the question to, to Mark and to Dan is, does the future hold something that, that is this transformational moment where incumbents and revolutionaries meet in the middle and people turn to old models where somehow blockchain becomes just another form of intermediary, a more clever intermediary, but focused down in some way. If you are transferring stuff that you are doing onto blockchain, does that become something that someone else can more easily replicate and you lose your, your USP? And from, from Ripple's point of view, what is to stop you, know, you in a few years' time becoming, as it were, a new Swift facing whatever challenges Swift is facing, whether it's um, Iran, North Korea, or, or uh, other, other issues. So a question for you, Mark, and for Dan, uh, which, whichever one wants to go first. Uh, 
the question of whether the revolutionaries uh, come together with the incumbents, I think we're already seeing that. So the 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 vendor provider for the te- technology that we're using for this uh, replatforming project I described, that's 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 a startup software vendor. So they're not necessarily looking to disrupt um, DTCC, which is to say they're not looking to become licensed themselves to provide the services that we do, um, as far as I know. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, but nonetheless, um, there's a there's a willingness to partner with a company like ours on their part um, and join forces in that way. So I think we're already seeing that. In fact, I think that was a lot of the story of last year uh, when we saw um, previously designs to try to displace. Uh, I think last year was much more about um, efforts to try and partner. Uh, with incumbents on the part of some of these firms that previously have been, I think, looking or more interested, had been more interested in um, uh, replacing. Yeah, obviously, I think it's um, a middle ground. Um, for Ripple, we um, obviously our view is to create the internet of value and the, the centers of value of uh, financial centers are, are banks. Um, so they remain hugely important, at least for the foreseeable future. Obviously, regulation is either activity or process-based or intermediary-based, and both may evolve uh, uh, over time. And I think we're seeing that process now, which is happening at the standard-setting bodies level, which is evaluating how, how both are evolving and, and new players and what their role may be and, and new processes and what their role may be. And as Mayor said earlier on, we, we are rele- relearning 1,000 years of financial history in some elements, but there are some new parts as well, which will probably involve a uh, closer inspection around elements of decentralization and other pieces which are a bit more tricky in the current process and how we how we regulate. So, you know, very, pretty political answer in the fact that, you know, we are, the, the current system isn't going anywhere, but it's evolving uh, in both uh, intermediaries and, and processes and, uh, and slowly but surely, I think we're, uh, we're slowly getting there. Uh, Peter made reference to this. The, the incumbent providers like DTCC, and I'm sure it's true of the European firms as well, uh, are not necessarily held back because of technology when it comes to the period of time it takes to settle a transaction, or at least a securities transaction. Um, just to make clear for the audience, the those who want to settle uh, virtually instantaneously in the U.S. and clear their transactions through DTCC, they can do that today. The issue is what Peter also said, which is not every firm wants to do that. So that's it's not an issue of technology whatsoever. In fact, the, the clearing services that we offer, I would argue, are very, very, um, very, very efficient. We're talking fractions of pennies to clear um, transactions, and, and as I said, ones that can be cleared nearly instantaneously. So it's it's not really a technology issue in that respect. I think it's more the issue of what Maya described. Uh, the complexity really comes from the number of players involved uh, in the ecosystem, um, but it goes back to another point made previously by a panelist. I don't know that we're ever going to do away with that um, and ever solve that because that, that really, to me, I think is largely a policy uh, consideration. And if and if policymakers, because of the public, insist that there be trusted entities, um, there's always going to be intermediaries. And there's always going to be, uh, as a consequence, the kind of complexity that this technology in a lot of ways is trying to, trying to get around. Thank you very much. So what I'd like to do is see whether anyone would... Uh like to take a stab at a first question to the panel. I do have a, a question up my own sleeve, obviously. But um, there's a lot. Ah, if you could introduce yourself and a question rather than a theological statement. Thank you. 
Sure. My name is Peter Moritz. I'm an entrepreneur in the blockchain space. Mark, is a question for you because you said it's a policy that have some intermediaries in, in, involved. Um, I remember when I used to work on the floor on the Board of Trade, there were a lot of middlemen from uh, phone clerks to brokers, and that made it more efficient to be a screen trading. So you see it in that way, they're heading the same way down the line doing this kind of work? Settlements? Thanks. Describe, ask the question again, though. So you're, you're talking specifically about settlement? Correct. You said that always middleman needs to be in between with the settlement. And I'm just saying that same kind of middleman, a lot of middlemen in the, in the floor who were doing other people business because they want to have some kind of yeah. uh, person in between who they can yell at when they make their mistakes. Uh, but what she was just mentioned. There. Yeah. So I th as it relates to, as it relates to settlement, um, you know, I think, I think obviously at the end of the day, there's always going to be some entity, whether it's a company or, or a consortium or, or what have you, that is actually the one providing the governance around a particular blockchain that is also providing settlement services. If it, if it were to come to that. Um, and I also think that, at least in the U.S., and again, as a former regulator myself, having some understanding of how supervisors look at these things, um, they're going to look at the activity and they're going to decide whether or not, simply because of the use of a different technology, whether or not those responsibilities that normally apply should should not apply in a particular case. And I, I just don't see that happening. Just to share another anecdote about this, um, I get these calls every now and again from entrepreneurs in the U.S., and um, they just want some informal advice about how the CFTC might look at one thing or another, um, um, having served there before. And, and recently, the theme is really around decentralization. If you have more and more decentralization of the protocols that actually execute trades, will the agency um, nonetheless still view that platform, let's call it, as an entity that has to be registered, whether it be as a swap execution facility or a designated contract market, whatever the case is. And um, my inform informal advice to them is, yes, they will. <laughs> yes, they will. I, I don't think it matters that it's decentralized. Um, it's an activity that's being performed and, and there's some level of... Um, not sure the right word, but self-identification of an entity or consortium that's providing that service uh, to the marketplace. So um, that's been the most recent flavor of it. But yeah, I, I think another example, and then I'll shut up. Um, custody, I think, is really fascinating. And, you know, what's happening now, and um, I can't speak for ICE or its new platform back, but it would seem that um, they're pursuing something along these lines as well. The, if you involve a clearinghouse in um, these derivatives transactions that are referencing Bitcoin that physically settle and the, and the contracts physically settle, the clearinghouse is going to take in the cryptocurrency. And that's, that's the way Ledger X does it too. Um, and that's being allowed for now. But the question is, does, will all clearinghouses going forward, um, want to be the custodians of all that cryptocurrency and the question there would be you have a huge target on your back right um 
And it's considerations like that that doesn't tell the whole story that gave rise to various custodial requirements, not just in the derivatives markets, but in the securities markets. Um, there's a view that some of these assets needed to be placed in a third party because you wanted some separation um, between the custodian who's actually holding the assets and the, and the asset manager, let's say, who's, who's trading on behalf of a customer. So I don't think that's, a, that's another issue. I don't see that going away. I, I think policymakers are gonna, always going to see that there's some value in having that type of separation. It, come, should, it might come in a different form through verification, let's say, instead of ownership but, or physical ownership, but you get the idea. I have, uh, I have a question which is based a little bit on what you were just talking about when you talked about concentration um, of custody. Um, trust has been mentioned in relation to the blockchain repeatedly. Um, the concomitant, the opposite part for trust is, is risk. Um, and we have talked in other sessions about concentration of risk occurring through, through blockchain. Um, in light of this sort of need for trust and this realisation that risk will uh, accumulate in certain places, what is the thing that each of you thinks might derail the positive progress of, of blockchain? Is it going to be a, a, a risk event, as it were, or is it going to be a failure of trust? Or is it potentially something else? that could take what you all, I think, broadly think is going to be a positive direction of travel and make it go slightly sideways. I'm just asking you to put on your darker spectacles and look into the future in a more negative way than perhaps we've uh, done in the last few minutes. Dan, do we start with you and then move down? Um, I suppose the biggest barrier to uh, adoption, uh, particularly around crypto assets, is uh, regulation, regulatory certainty at the moment. Um, there's clearly a case to be made for a number of use cases. Um, but at the moment, uh, we're in a bit of a chicken and egg cycle where particularly financial institutions who are ultimately the bookstop for the financial system, whether they're just providing banking services for a payment provider that may want to use a service, uh, unless they're totally comfortable with how to define their exposure to what, um, there's going to be particular issues around uh, adoption. And again, as I repeat, around prudential capital requirements, uh, as well as conduct and some of the institutions. Uh, like exchanges and, and how they're regulated at the moment. So I think um, the immaturity of the market so far uh, and the regulatory uncertainty is uh, a barrier to adoption, particularly in the space that we're in. Can I just lean in and ask a question there? Just If, if you do get a, a level of regulatory certainty and you are sort of brought more into the heart of the market, is there not a risk a little bit, as Maya said, that you start getting sucked into some creative um, packaging out of Wall Street and you know, rather than mortgages um, causing the end of civilization? it will be a, uh, a crypto asset that is underlying that somehow suddenly evaporates and causes disaster. Clearly that's not Ripple's view. <laughs> uh, and I uh, don't have a, a crystal ball. Uh, the market so far is very small uh, in terms okay. of financial uh, assets. Um, and I think being unregulated is, is probably not the way to prevent uh, issues around that. Of course, it didn't work with um, uh, 2008, but uh, having more oversight uh, and accountability will probably be helpful uh, assessing any market risk. Thank you. Peter? Well, I think you have to make a bit of distinction between the, um, the spot market or the underlying market, which is still relatively small. Uh, well, it, it was bigger, now it's smaller again in terms of at least market, market uh, capitalization. Um, but we've moved from an area where it was too small to care, which was too small to, mo uh, to notice, too big to, too big to ignore. Um, and sort of we're in, we're in 
that space yet. Now, you ask, well, what, how can trust be undermined? And you say, well, will it be a risk event or a trust event? I think it will be a risk event that will undermine the trust. And oh, right. we've, we've seen certain risk events, like in the, uh, the DAO, but we've seen some of the hacks at the, at the exchanges, which turned out to be uh, the result of poor governance and poor implementation. It wasn't anything wrong with the blockchain as such. It was people that were ran, running exchanges or platforms or brokerage firms <coughs> that weren't really behaving in a way you normally operate such activities and separate assets out and so on. But to come back to sort of the risk, you've got the underlying spot market, which is relatively small, but the potential to explode this market through derivatives is enormous. And I've used the term already that some people see, see the, the spot market as financial alchemy. I don't really think it is. But some of the derivatives that may be developed around it certainly will be financial alchemy. And there you can sort of see potentially a replication of what we've seen in the credit crisis where you had not even that small of an underlying credit market supporting a vast derivatives market. And changes in the underlying credit market really completely exploding the superstructure of the derivatives market. Imagine you have a fairly narrow spot market of crypto assets and a huge market of derivatives built on top of that. That could be a recipe for disaster um, if, if, if you're not careful. Now, derivatives, I think there's little debate among regulators that derivatives, whether they're referencing crypto assets or something else, are financial instruments and they're regulated as financial instruments. The real question is about the spot market. Is the spot market regulated, the underlying market? And there are other asset class markets that are not really regulated. Spot, many spot markets in commodities are not regulated, or at least not from a um, financial services perspective, yet they are far, far greater than the crypto asset market. The foreign exchange market is essentially unregulated. So people say, well, and, and these markets thrive, they work, so why do these markets not need regulation and this crypto asset market, which really is a fraction of it, does need regulation? I, mean, I don't know the answer to the question, I've just observed this. Is it. I mean, one could argue that people have been watching entirely too many dystopian futures where technology is the cause of disaster, whereas Forex is too mysterious for people to truly understand and worry about. Um, Maya, leaving aside my <laughs> silly summary, well, where do you think it might go slightly uh, sideways? Um, I think a lot of people got hurt in the last six months. A lot of retail, institutional investors, family offices kind of dipped their toes just to try out the water. And I think the biggest, um, I don't know if it's a risk, it's a threat that we're going to build something and they won't come because we scared them. Um, the, the willingness of people to try again a new financial instrument, a new service, especially if you're going to hit have to pay in the token just to validate your identity, you know, in different, um, I think along those economical uh, psychologies, we need people to pay and trust in the tax, in the service providers, in, um, in the infrastructure. And we could have just scared them at least for another year and a half too. That's one thing. The other thing is regulatory clarity. Uh, and again, it also has to be uh, 
specified for the spot markets, so the people who are trading Ledger X, Bitcoin, Coinbase, Ethereum, and, and the wallets for these providers are gonna have to do that. And two, for people who are gonna use this tech. We can't have, even if our implementation of blockchain be something that needs to be um, accessible to everyone, if we want this to be a real thing that we're going to be regardless of if we're gonna be talking about um, oil, or identity, or just the data market. Um, these things are gonna need to be settled in the native currency on the blockchain. That means they're gonna have their own spot markets that are not a decentralized exchange or decentralized exchange. And we need the regulators, which I think the EU Commission um, is doing a really good job with FCA um, and different other regulators around the, around the world to actually keep up with this tech and understand what people are working on and what kind of questions that opens up. The other thing, that also needs people to come in and actually use it and not get scared is the US. This, and we talk about blockchain in a lot of abstracts, right? About different thesis and philosophies and markets and prices. But trying to trick someone down who is not as tech savvy, doesn't know what a private public uh, key is, and tell them that they need to start using a wallet. We still have a long time to go in that. And uh, the fourth uh, thing I would say is interoperability. If we're going to see both public market, public uh, blockchain implementations of projects and private uh, uh, DLC projects, we need to be able to move in between cross-chain interoperability without having to pay for new intermediaries and complexity. Thank you very. Thank you very much. Um, Said, you, you mentioned the blues band, and, and I, despite Brexit, your policy-making career is almost certainly not over. Do you think at some point you might wake up uh, and sing to yourself, a digital asset done me wrong? You can write my next song if you want. Um, so um, I think I started off by saying, and I, I come back to this, about one of the things that we look at as politicians, what happens when something goes wrong? So what could possibly go wrong here? Um, well, things that could... I could, I could foresee, you know, suddenly get lots of letters or emails from constituents would be something like, I don't know, some, say two, two or three areas I think of. One is a bubble. Um, and, you know, actually at some stage, these cryptocurrencies get converted back into real cash at, at the moment, you know, at, and, and you've built up a bubble. and Or actually have people lost a lot of money? Uh, have, have, you know, I mean, I mean you, you, you started seeing people asking questions, you know, um, oh, you know a bit about technology. Should I invest in Bitcoin? Well, hold, hold a minute. You know, even in the even in in even in standard investment, non-technology stuff that we do here, I've I've always argued when it comes to uh, you know investing in uh, in the stock market, you should only invest money that you're prepared to lose. Um, we we say we always say you know the value of your investments can can go down as well as up. That's kind of our warning. I don't think that's enough. I think you should always say to people, only put money into markets that you're prepared to lose. I know it's a bit of a stark warning, but you know it, it could it could all, it could all go wrong. So one is a bubble. The second thing is, um, what happens with a smart contract if you want to challenge that smart contract? Who do you challenge? And also, why do you want to challenge it? And has there been deliberate fraud? Can you trace where 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 where, where, where? in one case can you trace where the money has gone, as it were. And therefore, that's, you know, and you get letters from constituents. So actually outright fraud with any tech, in anything, you know, whether it's technology or not, there are always people out there who are trying to con others. And if that happens, and people will blame the technology rather than just blaming the individual fraudster, that's something that we have to watch out for. The other things that we've got to look, about, look out for from, you know, previous issues is actually, 
Are our supervisors going to be up to it? I'm not, there's not a criticism of supervisors. It's a very difficult work. Are regulators and legislators going to be up to it? You know, let's, let's, be, let's be honest. Who takes responsibility when something goes wrong? Um, you know, so, for example, you think back to the financial crisis. No bank directors went to jail. There was, where, was, where was the direct, direct liability? Well, partly because of having no direct liability, as Warren Buffett said, they didn't actually care what was on their balance sheet. Actually, had someone said to them, you, you are responsible if something goes wrong, then you'd, be, you, you'd probably be asking, what are these CDOs and CDSs? How do they work? And actually, hold, hold on a minute about the CDO. You know, how, what, what debt relates to the CDO? You know, and when you look at some of the stories from back to um, picking the CDOs, in some cases, it took six months to work out the, the, the bits of debt that were connected with particular CDOs. You know, so that's not related to the blockchain specifically, but these problems occur anyway without the technology. And you could get these same problems in the blockchain world, and people might well blame blockchain rather than the forces themselves. And that's where we as politicians have to be seen to be responding. So some of the same old stuff and some new stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Mark, as, as, as a former regulator, so where, where, where do you think the dystopian future of blockchain might lie? Just, you know, an unloaded question. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, you know, for, for reasons that we've covered quite a bit already, I, I oftentimes wonder um, whether most of the benefits are going to come outside the financial services space. So I guess in that respect, I don't see it as so dystopian. And if it's outside of a highly regulated industry, such as financial services, um, and, there's a, and there's tolerance for dealing in trustless environments um, on the part of commercial firms, um, and you know, let let people have their own views about which industry that would be. That that might be the area where you could see something really interesting and and something far different than what um, uh, the world looks like today in those particular sectors. So, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, making up stuff here basically because I'm not really always an expert dangerous. on other industries. But <coughs> always dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I I don't know if it's something any industry, like I said, that's not really especially regulated. I think would probably be an area to watch and where you have to keep track of um, provenance or ownership of assets. So essentially the, the people along this table working in the financial space are probably secure because there's regulation pointing out a lot of what they're doing. But in another space, you mentioned Forex, for example, we might suddenly find ourselves going slightly sideways. Okay, well, look, um, uh, we are supposed to finish at half past the hour. Um, thank you very much indeed to our panellists. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to them. We'll wrap up now and make way for the final panel, which is on mobility and transport. Thank you for your attention and thank you to our panellists.